0: Welcome to the 401k Audit CPA Success Show, where we're 100% focused on helping companies across the United States prepare for their 401k audit. If you have 100 eligible participants in your 401k plan, then this podcast is for you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's podcast. Uh, Once again, you have Jamie Na and Kim here from uh, Summit CPA, and we're going to talk about the Form 5500s today. So this should be a a really interesting topic, and I think something that anyone that has a benefit plan should be um, really interested in, and I think we'll give you a lot of details as well as a lot of dates and um, all that good stuff. But let's just start with um, what is the, the Form 5500, Kim?
1: Yeah, thanks, Jamie, um, and welcome, everyone. Uh, it's a timely topic because uh, for most folks, the 5500 is going to be uh, coming up due here pretty soon. The Form 5500 is it's actually an IRS form, so it's a tax form, very similar to other tax forms that you may be familiar with. It looks very much like a tax form, has all the, the legalese and all the boxes that you fill out. It doesn't have any money that's due with it. So that's one difference. Um, If you're used to your personal tax return or maybe a corporate tax return, um, you're going to figure out a whole bunch of numbers. And at the end, you come down that a certain amount of taxes due. You've paid a certain amount already and either you owe the IRS some money or maybe that they owe you some back if you've overpaid. In this case, there are a lot of numbers on the form, but there will be no tax due per se with the 5500 It's really just an informational return. It's providing information to both the IRS and the Department of Labor and other governmental agencies. But for a 401k plans, primarily those two agencies regarding your plan, uh, what happened with the plan during the year. And then there are some pieces of information on there that they will use to analyze plans you know, across the country and, and then also your particular plan. They're looking for certain things that you were supposed to have done or not done. And depending on how you answer the questions, that may trigger them to follow up with you. Due dates for this 5,500, they're pretty standard. The original due date for the 5,500 is seven months after the end of your plan year. For most plans, most plans are calendar year plans. So your plan year is going to go from January 1st to the end of December. For those plans, that means that that original 5500 filing date is the end of July. Now, for most folks that have pretty simple plans, they don't require an audit, you know, and they're on top of everything, getting that filed by the end of July is usually no issue because your service provider should actually be preparing the form for you. You just need to review it and then you have to actually file it. But getting it done by the end of July is no problem. If you need a little more time, and especially those folks that need an audit and especially a first year audit, getting it done by the end of July can be tough. So they do give you an extension period. This is true. Every year has nothing to do with any kind of emergency going on or anything. It's an automatic extension that will give you until October 15th for calendar year plans or it's three and a half months after the last day of your plan year, if it's a non-calendar year plan. Again, those extensions, there's no money due with it. It doesn't cost you extra. There's no penalty or anything associated with it. Your service provider does need to fill out a form. It does need to get filed, does need to get accepted. You wanna make sure all that happens, otherwise, it can provide a penalty for you, but in most cases, you're just going to file the extension. It gets accepted, and then you got an extra three months and another half a month to get it filed, get your audit done, get everything done.
0: Is there any, so if you, if you do file for the extension and you don't plan on filing until October um, 15th, are there any fees or anything that go with that, or is it just uh, just getting the thing filed?
1: Yeah, no, there's there's no um, fees. There's no penalties. Um you do want to make sure it gets, it does get filed, it does get accepted. But, and that's okay. a pretty standard routine procedure. Um, nobody should be afraid of that. In fact, a lot of plans get the extension. A lot of service providers will file it automatically for you. And another thing that I like to point out is I think it's a good idea to go ahead and do it if there's any doubt at all that you might not meet that date, regardless of whether you need not or not, because there's nothing wrong with filing for the extension, getting the extension, and then you can meet the July date anyways. There's no penalty. There doesn't, it doesn't cause a system problem or anything.
0: Is there a, a timeline for when you need to file that um, for the extension? Like, Can you file for it on uh, July 30th, or is there a timeline that you need to file that you're going to use the extension?
1: Yeah, you just need to make sure it's filed before the due date. So the end of July, Um, obviously, you don't want to leave it to the last minute (laughs) um, because it needs to get accepted. But as long as they have it and it's accepted before the end of July, you're good to go. Okay. The other thing I like to point out with these filings and the, um, you know, the 5500, you really need to be careful who's filing the 5500 on your company's behalf. It needs to be something called a fiduciary. So that is usually the plan administrator or the plan trustee. The plan trustee is the person that has overall responsibility for the plan, it's usually a higher up level individual. Plan administrator is someone that works with the plan on a daily regular basis. Either one is fine. And you can have one fiduciary from plan, you might have 20. It, it just depends on the size of your plan and how you're organized. But whoever does that filing, automatically becomes a fiduciary. It's one of the duties that is defined as fiduciary. So you want to make sure you don't just have, you know, oh that, you know, Susie's available today, let's have her file it. <laughs> um, you don't, you know, you don't want to do that because number one, it's not good for Susie, puts her at um, a little bit of risk that she's probably not aware she's taking on. But it's also not good for your company cuz one of the things that you need to do is double check the 5500 before it's filed and we're going to get into this here in a little bit, but it needs to be somebody that is knowledgeable about the plan um, and knowledgeable about some of this information. Otherwise, you could file a 5,500 that's incorrect. So you meet the deadline, so you're good there. It looks all good on the surface, but then once the DOL, IRS, or others start digging into it, they find out that there's errors or they start questioning things that maybe are really correct, but they look incorrect because of what you filed with the fifty five hundred. so needs to be somebody knowledgeable that's doing the filing
0: and then, okay, so that's great. So it needs to be someone knowledgeable if um again, whoever does file it becomes a fiduciary, so that's um obviously there's some responsibilities that go with that. so you want to make sure that you have someone that um understands the plan and is going to review it now what what are the steps? where Where would we go to to file our um fifty five hundred?
1: What I tell folks is that talk to your service provider because they all usually have some type of system that they use that connects between their system that created the 5500 and where it needs to end up when it's all said and done. The DOL changed the rules several years ago. You used to be able to file this as a paper form, just like you would, I mean, even today, most folks don't do it this way but if you have a personal tax return you still can do it by hand and you know get your little pencil out do it on a piece of paper and mail it in i you know most most folks don't do that but you still could you're not allowed to do that with these types of um, informational returns you wouldn't want to anyways cuz it's a lot of volume of information but you're not allowed to it needs to be an electronic filing It needs to go through something called the EFAST system, which is a Department of Labor system, and they have set requirements, set data, you know, needs for it to go through. You know, if you're familiar with working with IT systems, you know that they have set requirements. This one's no different, but your service provider will have systems that interface um, between their systems and the DOL EFAS system. So work with them. You can file directly on the EFAS system. If you need to, you can do that. You need to get credentials and then follow the instructions. Um, and I have actually done it before. It's not that complicated, but it's better if you can use your service provider's link between that because it has edits and it'll double check it. It'll let you know if for some reason it doesn't go through or there's an error or something. So I would I would advise Use that if you can. If that's not available, in um, sometimes maybe your service provider doesn't have that option, or you know maybe it's not available or something. You can file directly.
0: Okay. Great. So, you mentioned that all all plans need to file a 5,500, but um, you you also mentioned that some plans need to be audited. What is the requirement to make a plan that needs to be audited?
1: Yeah, and um, actually, that's one of the things that the DOL is checking. Um, I said that they they require certain information, and then they're going to double-check things that are on there. One of the things is the participant count. So, um, actually, it's on the second page. Of the Form 5500, there's a whole series of numbers that you have to include regarding folks that are in the plan. So, those people that are participating and contributing, those folks that are in the plan, that maybe are no longer with your company, but they still have plan assets. So, maybe they've terminated, um, retired, you know, and they still have plan assets. But it also includes those folks that are eligible to participate. So they've met whatever the requirements are to actually contribute to the plan, but they've chosen not to for whatever reason, which is all fine. But if you add all three of those numbers together and they're over 100 and it's a 401k plan, then you will more than likely need an audit. There are some um, other kind of specific rules we won't go into today. We did another podcast uh, covering that. so if you, have, if you have questions around that, you can check out one of our other podcasts. But basically you have more than 100 eligible participants and regardless of whether they're participating or not. So the audit is driven by number of eligible participants at the beginning of the year. Uh, If it's over 100, then you're gonna need an audit. So some things that confuse people, get them tripped up, is that eligible. It's not just the folks that are participating. You know, you might have 500 people eligible and there are only two in the plan. And you think, well, you know, it's only two people. So that can't be, well, no, it's driven by eligible. It's driven by the first day of the year. So if on January 2nd, a whole bunch of people terminate or, you know, they pull their assets out of the plan, doesn't matter. It It's January 1st, drives it. And then it doesn't matter. We always get questions from people saying, well, yeah, I've got, you know, 300 eligible people, but the plan size, actual dollars in the plan, you know, is very small. It's some small number. So surely I don't need to have an audit. Unfortunately, yes, you do. It's not the, the dollar amount in there, the complexity of the of the assets, a complexity of the plan, size of the company, none of those things make any difference. Um, it really is very simply driven by number of eligible participants.
0: And we talked about this in a, in a previous podcast, but I um, just kind of want to re-hit on it again. And I think this just emphasizes why it's important to make sure you understand who's eligible for your plan and, and think through those requirements. You know, if you're a, a restaurant company and you have 500 employees that all work 10 hours a week and you make your eligibility requirements super low, but none of them actually enroll in the plan, then obviously you're going to need to be audited where, you know, you might want to think through that to place an hours limit on some of the other stuff we talked about in a previous podcast. So I mean, I think would you agree yeah. with that
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And we we see that all the time. Sometimes folks, they are not even aware that an audit is possibility. Nobody's ever told them that. Um, Their service provider doesn't tell them and they've just never heard of it before. And so they get a big surprise because the audits are expensive and they take a lot of time and effort. So if you don't need one, you don't, you know, you don't want to have to have one if you can avoid it. So yeah, they, may be surprised, don't understand, and um, there are some easy things you can do in terms of your plan setup, um, requiring people to, you know, have a certain number of hours or a certain period of time, and maybe they have to be with, you know, your company for a year before they're even eligible, Um, that that will negate some folks. You can specify things like full time. So sometimes, if you uh, work in a restaurant type, retail type environment, or we see it a lot in health in healthcare as well. So like home healthcare, um, folks may not work a full time schedule week after week after week. And so, if you if you set the requirements well, if you're over age twenty one, you're automatically eligible you know, those people are all gonna come into play where if you have more of an hours requirement or a time requirement that they have to provide service with the company, that that can help um, take the audit out of the out of the equation. But you have to be very careful too, because sometimes you can set it in a certain way to try to avoid an audit and then you make your eligibility requirement so complicated that now you've got an administrative burden trying to figure yeah. that out.
0: So, it's a fine line for sure. It is,
1: yeah. So again, I would double check with your service provider and just ask them if if you're worried about this uh, or maybe you can see your numbers creeping up, talk to them about things. Uh, now you're going to have to do a plan amendment, so you'd have to change your plan requirements, uh, but you may find that it's a lot cheaper to do that one-time change versus getting into the audit cycle. Now you got to do two, three, four years of audits before you can get out of it. It's kind of hard to get out of the audit cycle once you're in it.
0: Yeah, you know for sure. So, so, so you mentioned um, prior to, to actually filing the 5500 that you should do a review. Do you have a list of some things that um, I, as a reviewer, should take a look at?
1: I do. Yeah, I do have a list, and um, actually, we also have a booklet that we provide to um, our clients. That talks about not only the 5500, but the audit report and things that they should look for as, um, you know, they've been given a draft. So what do I do with this? What What should I look for? So we actually have a booklet. So uh, anyone who's listening to this, um, if you'd like to get a copy of that, by all means, just reach out. And I know, Jamie, you're going to give them the, the website uh, or the I uh, email, email
0: address. Wrote, <laughs> I'll throw it out there. Yeah. So if you, um, you want to email for that booklet or anything else, you know, you definitely can email us at audit at summitcpa.net. Again, audit at S U M M I T CPA.net, And again, we can send you a that booklet that'll help you understand what to review when it comes to the 5500, but also if you have topics for us or anything else that you think would um, help our podcast, we'd love to hear from you.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Jamie. Things to look for um, on the 5500 some just some basic things, make sure the name of the plan is right, the name of the company is right, the address is right, you know, just basic things like that. The DOL is going to look for what's called the EIN number, which is your tax ID number. It's usually the tax ID number of the company, um, unless for some reason you've set up a unique tax ID number for the plan. But anyways, you want to make sure that that's right, because that's one of the things that they double check is that if you, this particular ID number filed a 5,500 last year, they're expecting you're going to file one this year if they don't see that. So maybe there's a just a typo or something or transposition of a number. You can end up having uh, problems with the DOL or the IRS just simply over a a typo on the form. So you want to double check that EIN number. It will also have a plan number. It's usually a number like 001, 002. Again, want to double check that because that identifies to both the IRS and DOL this particular filing for For this particular plan, so I wanted to make sure that that's right. There's a lot of information. Then, as you get back in the towards the back, middle, in the back of the form, probably a lot of that. Unless you see something that really stands out, as you know, I don't understand why is this name of this you know entity here. I've never worked with them, but a lot of that probably you wouldn't you wouldn't know necessarily if it's correct or not. But if you get back to what's called Schedule H, um, that's the financial statement for the plan. So, it will talk about the assets or investments that are in the plan comparing last year to this year, you know, and then it'll be a change. Obviously, it went up or down. And so, it'll talk about what made up that difference. So, there were contributions to the plan, people taking money out of the plan, fees to the plan, et cetera. So you should have information from your service provider. Um, You're in financial statements. You want to just double check that, make sure it looks reasonable. There'll also be behind that then, there's information about whether an audit's required or not, and you're going to fill that out if if there is an audit that's needed. And then there's a section of compliance questions. Again, on the Schedule H, it's Section 4, and there's a whole list of questions. So you want to look at those questions and just make sure that, you know, they're reasonable If something doesn't look quite right, you wanna ask your service provider. If there's something you don't understand, there's a question, you're like, I I don't even know what this is asking. Again, I would talk to your service provider or talk to your auditor. You know, if if the plan is under audit, ask the auditor, because we look at those things as well. And we could help, you know, explain them um, to you. Uh, If you don't have an auditor, go to your service provider. And again, don't be afraid to ask, because the last thing you wanna do um, you know, you, you, one of the questions is asking about a fidelity bond. I don't, I don't know what that is. Surely that's not important. I marked it no. Red flag area for the DOL right now. So, that you know, you may be getting a questionnaire from them saying, why do you not have a bond for your plan when you very well may have one and everything may be fine. Again, goes to the accuracy of that form. It's very important. So double check. If you have any questions, make sure you
0: ask. So, if, um, if my plan is getting audited, um, what is the auditor's responsibility when it comes to the Form 5500 and what do you, we at Summit normally do when it comes to um, you know the 5500 as well?
1: Yeah. the uh, I mean, we're not responsible for the 5500, so we don't put it together, and we are not ultimately responsible for the accuracy of the 5500. That is the plan sponsor, so the company sponsoring the, for, the 401k plan, it is their responsibility. We do check it. We will not issue an audit report. Um, This is a summit policy. It is going to become an audit requirement in another year or two, just depending on when your firm adopts some upcoming guidance. So it is going to be a requirement that the firms have the 5,500, but we have always required that we have a draft of the 5,500 and we compare it to our audit report, we're required to put a reconciliation in the audit report if there are differences. And sometimes there are, and that's not a problem. It's reasonable. We're working on a different type of accounting set of principles and the provider may be doing on the 5500. So like I said, it's okay. It's just that we would need to do the reconciliation. So that's one of the things we're doing. But we also take a look at the 5500 um, here at Summit ourselves. So some of those things that I talked about, we double check and make sure the name, the, the EIN numbers, all that stuff is correct. We'll take a look at the participant counts. We're not going to audit those per se, but we're going to look at them for reasonableness. If we know that the plan has 500 people and it's showing you know, a 1,000 or it's showing 200, we're going to say, hey, this is clearly not correct. We're also going to heavily look at that financial information at the back. We're going to look at the compliance questions. Anything that we believe is incorrect, we will pass back to both the provider and also our client, which is the plan sponsor. Make sure that You know, we have a good understanding if it needs corrected, make sure that we're getting that information to the right person to get it corrected. There also are things that may come up during the audit that could change, especially the financial information, some of those compliance questions. Maybe the person thought it was correct at the time, but as we do the audit, we identify that no, that number isn't correct or one of those compliance questions needs changed. So, again, same thing, we will provide that information to both the provider and our client to make sure it gets updated throughout our process
0: that's very helpful, and again, I, I knew um back in the day when I did audits that we got to obviously review the fifty five hundred but the responsibility there was always a little confusing, so I appreciate you uh, mm-hmm. clarifying that and I'm sure a lot of people out there that have plans like, oh I know my auditor is involved in this process, so it's I think it's great <laughs> right. understand that okay, so kind of the the final the final section here, so um what if I can't file by the deadline? So I extended, and then here I am on October 10th, and it's just um, I'm not going to be able to finish this audit in five days. So what? Um, what are my next steps?
1: Yeah, we hope you don't get here because it can be um, be a tricky handling of the situation, and it also can be uh, can be very costly if you don't handle it correctly. There's a few different things that you can do, and uh, and I like to point out first of all, there are kind of two components. So Filing the 5,500 is one component, Um, kind of monitored by the IRS primarily. The DOL also will see it, but it's primarily the responsibility of the IRS to make sure that you file the 5,500. If you need an audit, then that's under the purview of the Department of Labor. And both organizations or agencies have, of course, fees if you don't file at all or you don't file on time. And those fees can be extremely uh, costly if you don't, you know, you don't file on time and you just kind of ignore it. So first thing I like to point out is try to be on time if you can. Do everything you can, uh, move it up the importance ske- schedule or importance listing, um, make it a priority, do everything you can to file on time. If you absolutely cannot for whatever reason, if the reason is because of some type of disaster, so if we've seen over the last several years where there have been natural disasters like hurricanes, the wildfires that happened, some other types of natural disasters, the IRS will issue extensions for tax returns. And this it doesn't apply just to these tax returns, but to any tax return for FEMA declared disaster areas. So, number one, check that out uh, if that applies to you. Then you're going to get an extension to time. But in most cases, you're not going to be able to extend. There is no extension deadline beyond that October 15th. And what happens if you miss the October 15th deadline, that extension that you got that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, that goes away. So you go back to your original deadline, in this case, for calendar year plan of the end of July. So any type of penalty then gets applied from August 1st through to whenever you correct the deficiency. So it's supposed to be filed by October 15th, and this is the deadline, and you actually file November 20th, let's say. They're going to calculate your penalty from August 1st to November 20th. It is a per-day fine imposed by both the IRS and the DOL if an audit was required. There are minimums, maximums. Um, there's standard penalties, maximum penalties. I won't bother, you know, <laughs> bore everybody with all the the dollar amounts. But they're not, you know, five, ten dollars. They're thousands of dollars a day. And remember, if you need an audit, that's two sets of those penalties. It's not uncommon. We have seen clients come to us in a panic that they missed the whole thing, just weren't aware of it. Maybe their service provider didn't tell them. Who knows? Here comes a letter from the Department of Labor. You were supposed to have an audit. You didn't have one. They will send a certified letter to you and it will inform you that you need an audit. You didn't have one. And you will have, in most cases, they'll give you 45 days to correct that. Now to get an audit done from scratch in 45 days when you don't even have an auditor is, it can be done, but it's very <laughs> difficult and is going to cost you a lot of money to, to get that completed if you ignore the letter or you don't get it done, that letter will tell you, once you get past that 45 days, by act of Congress, they are not allowed to give you any more extensions. Regardless, it doesn't matter why. I mean, you could have a very valid reason at that point why you can't get it done, but it doesn't matter. They, at that point, are required to issue a penalty to you. And those penalties can be $30,000, $40,000, $50,000. They're, they're yeah.
0: very large. <laughs> I'm looking at this list you have right here, and I'm like, Doing the math in my head, I'm like, you could double or triple your audit fee in, in, easy. in no time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> easy. Like, so.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's one set of fines because usually, if, yeah. you, if you need the audit, you've missed the 5500 filing as well. So, you know, I just tell people don't don't ignore any notice that you get from a federal agency. Number one, verify that it's truly coming from them; yeah. it's not some kind of fraudster notice. If you're getting something in the mail and it comes certified. Stop everything and pay attention because it's going to tell you exactly what you need to do when you get that notice. Call them, email them, do whatever you need to do to get a hold of them and find out exactly what you need to do and get going. Don't waste. One day can make a huge difference as to whether you're going to be able to adhere to their requirements and ultimately determine if you get a fine and how much it's going to be. The other things that you can do, both the IRS and the DOL have delinquent filer programs. They have slightly different acronyms, but they both have delinquent filer um, program in their name. So, you know, if you get into the situation, Google that, look for those. There are different steps. They both work slightly differently. Um, So again, just that they have some pretty clear guidance. Um, This is one area where I think it is pretty clear on their website what exactly you need to do. So follow those steps. Again, don't, Try to do your own thing and don't try to say, well, I'm sure what they want is something else. No, do exactly what they say. If you don't follow their their guidance exactly, they'll kick it out and then you're back to those $50,000 fines. But if you follow those um, those exact requirements, it will limit your penalty substantially. Still will be a fine, still will be a penalty, but it will not be nearly as large. And the IRS and DOL are, are both um, very good about, you know, they understand this is complicated, it's not your main business. People mess up. It just happens. So if you stand up and say, hey, look, I missed this. I didn't know about it or I just missed it or I was too busy or whatever. And you go and you submit under these filing programs, there's not going to be other repercussions. You'll have to pay the, the penalty associated with that. But that's not going to like trigger an audit from the IRS or DOL is not going to show up on your doorstep. You know, They'll say, OK, you, you realized you made a mistake. And they will just, you know, let it go through the process and it'll be fine. Now, that will not work, though, if you get a notice from either of those two agencies and then you say, "Okay, now I'm going to go hold up my hand and do the fire." No, that will not work. Uh, You have to do it before they do. But anyways, I, I guess bottom line, my guidance to people would be, number one, if you get a notice, don't ignore it. Get on it right away. If you think you can't file on time, get with your service provider. Try to take advantage of those delinquent filer programs. But whatever you do, don't ignore it and get on it ASAP because the longer it goes, the the more those fines, they just keep accumulating. They get bigger and bigger and bigger. So don't ignore it.
0: Especially because you mentioned early on, you know, the 5500 is it is a, a tax or an IRS form, but it's not like you pay taxes on it. It is just a, a form that's being submitted for um, data purposes, but also to check the you know compliance of your plan. So you don't want to have to incur charges on something you really don't have to pay outside of paying auditor fees. So I think that's really important. And again, um, really good tips there on um, you know raising your hand is a lot easier than um, waiting for the letter to come and starting to incur those penalties. Because like I said, I mean penalties um, are not are not cheap. So no, no. <laughs>
1: and and they're they're getting bigger, too. The other thing I would say is that uh, every year the they inflation adjusts them so they get bigger every year that do, and it's a per dollar or per day dollar amount. They get bigger. And Congress does not have a lot of sympathy in this area. So every so often they'll just attach to another bill that we've just raised it again. So they're not they're not going to go away. They're not going to get smaller. It's only going to get worse.
0: Great. Well, I think this was uh, really informative, uh, Kim. I know I learned a lot, um, so I appreciate you uh, coming on and hitting on this topic, and um, hopefully our listeners appreciate it as well.
1: Thank you. Look forward to our next session.
0: Yeah, for sure. Enjoy this episode? Visit our website at summitcpa.net to get more tips and strategies for achieving 401k audit success. We're here to be a resource with ever-changing rules and regulations.